as you think of the United States, how would you, in a concise way, describe the United States? In 1958, a, a political novel was written called The Ugly American. It's a term that has been applied to Americans around the world since that time. In fact, the Peace Corps was started because of, in part, because of the influence of that political novel. I've had the, the undeserved privilege and joy of being on several continents and functioning as an American, watching people on the team with me and how they function. Americans are loud by many standards in the rest of the world. Uh, we, uh, we are very confident, and that confident is often interpreted as arrogance. We actually believe that the way we do things is the best way, the only way, which just is crazy. Why in the world do we still have our, why aren't we doing the metric thing? What's wrong with us? The rest of the world is metric. We're self-sufficient. We're cowboys. We're pioneers. And that has served us to a large degree very well. However, we have taken that approach, that, that independence, that it's up, if it's going to be, it's up to me kind of a thought, and we've applied it to our walk with God in a way that the Scriptures do not support. We talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is absolutely true, and it's taught. An individual must, by faith, humble themselves and receive the free offer of grace, mercy, forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation that Jesus provided for us on the cross. We're going to remember that in a few minutes. That's absolutely, undeniably true. I cannot make that decision for you. You cannot make it for me. So there is a, an individual aspect of our faith. However, However, there's also a community aspect of our faith that we often minimalize, almost neglect. In our study of the seven churches, this is the seventh week, the seventh church, as recorded for us in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and chapter 3, Jesus addresses a church. He talks to a church. He commends and criticizes a church, a group of people. Churches have personalities. Churches have history. They have practices, patterns. And we're not going to be what God wants us to be until we understand not only the individual aspect of it, but the collective aspect. For the seventh and last time in this particular series, we're going to read chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. I invite you to turn in your Bible. I invite you to take your device and scroll to that. Look at the screen if you want. We have many different 
uh, translations, and they're similar enough that we can follow. And we're going to stand in a moment uh, out of anticipation for what the Holy Spirit might want to say to us individually and collectively as a church, and out of just sheer surrender and respect to God's Word. Would you stand with me as we read together Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are open and responsive, humble. Help us to surrender. Protect these dear people, Father, from an interpretation that I have that might be incorrect or from an application that might not be appropriate. We need to hear from you. We invite your spirit who indwells us, who follow you, to be our guide, our teacher, our comforter, our convictor, Lord, whatever we need, please. Meet us here, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As in each of these seven letters, Jesus is the one who's kind of dictating it, and he identifies himself uh, early in the letter. And then each time, it's unique to that particular church. And we see that here as well. I'm looking at verse 14. He calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The Amen has to do with God's promises. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Jesus is the establisher of God's promises. When God promises something, He will keep His word. The challenge for us is to discern to whom 
the promise was made and what exactly was the promise. You may have heard every promise in the book is mine. That is not true. Every promise in God's Word is not for everybody. There are specific promises to specific people, groups of people, at a particular time and place with a particular need or challenge. We need to discern what the application of that might be or does it apply to us. And there are numerous wonderful life transformational promises made to the follower of Jesus. And those promises are true and they're relevant and they apply to you and they apply to me. We can trust them because Jesus is the amen. He's faithful and true. He's going to keep his word. And then he says he's the ruler of God's creation. The ruler of God's creation. Um, um, ruler could mean first in point of time, like the beginning, or first in rank, the word translated ruler. And, that's, and, the, and my particular translation points, calls it ruler. He's the guy in charge. Uh, there is a heresy called Arianism that started back in the 4th century after Christ uh, in which uh, it, the teaching was that Jesus was a created being. He was not always eternal God. He was created, better than we are, uh, but, but a created being. And that is one of the the, the faults of the Jehovah's Witness, if they understand what they're teaching and what they believe, they believe that Jesus is not God. <coughs> he was a created being. That's false teaching. This verse is used to sort of justify that, depending upon the translation. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 reminds us, all things created by him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is, is the creator, sustainer. Uh, he's the ruler. He's in charge. Church I served for many years uh, had a twice-a-year work day, once in the spring and then once again in the fall. And during that work day, we, all, all kinds of people, men, women, boys, girls, young people got together we, we made a big deal out of it. It was well attended. Uh, there was, uh, you know, food to eat and fellowship and encouragement and fun stuff. But one of the tasks that was accomplished at least once a year was the refreshing of the mulch around the church. It was a large church, lots of property, lots of mulch. And so the mulch was delivered ahead of time and positioned in different places to facilitate uh, it being spread. On one particular Saturday, we had met and uh, that people came with their skid steers and their front end loaders and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, we, and they moved the mulch around and they realized they were going to run out of mulch before they were done. So a guy from our church named Chris uh, calls up the supplier of the mulch and, uh, and asks for more mulch to be delivered. And the guy who answers the phone says to him, well, we can't do that. Thank you very much, but this is Saturday. We have limited drivers and limited trucks, and we can bring it Monday, but we can't bring it now. Chris, the guy who's making a phone call, says, wait a minute. This is Chris. Chris owned the business. 
would you, would you be surprised that in a very few minutes, a triaxle pulled in with a load of mulch? Okay? Jesus is saying, I'm the ruler. I'm the boss. And it's much more important than mulch. But, but we gotta, he's, he's drawing attention to that when he's talking to this church because he's going to give them a gut punch. He is going to say some things to them that they never anticipated and that would, that would be very, very challenging. And he wants them to know, hey, I'm the guy in charge. I'm the keeper of the promises. Okay? So then he just starts to describe the church. Verse 15, I know your deeds. Now, notice he's not talking about their doctrinal statement. He's not talking about their constitution and bylaws. He's not talking about their vision statement. He's not talking about their written strategies. He's talking about what they really do, not what they would like to do, what they think they're doing, but what they really do. And his conclusion is not very positive. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither whole nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, you make me sick. I'm going to throw up. You are useless. Now, we'll find in this letter, in a dramatic way, that Jesus is the master communicator. And he is talking to the people of this church in a city called Laodicea, and they had several unique characteristics. And he addresses them and uses them to help make his point. Laodicea was a very wealthy commerce, all kinds of real positive things. We'll talk about those in a moment. But they did not have a decent water supply. And so they had to get their water from another place, actually two different places. One was a place where they had hot springs, and so it was hot water coming in, uh, and through a series of aqueducts, some above ground, some underground. Another was from a, a place like in the mountains uh, where the cold water came down, and it, and it, same thing with the aqueducts coming in. And, and because of it had to travel the distances to get there, when it got to Laodicea, it was, yeah. It wasn't hot anymore, and it wasn't cold anymore. It was lukewarm. They couldn't use it for, for the, the benefits of a hot drink or a hot bath, things like that. That wasn't there. And then again, it was just lukewarm, kind of blase. And he's saying, that's what you're like. You're useless. An incredible thing. You make me sick. Wow. Uh, who wants to hear that? He continues to say, verse 17, You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. You are self-sufficient. You don't think you need anything. Laodicea was known for three other things, in addition to not having a decent water supply. One was that they were incredibly wealthy, a wealthy community. In 60 AD, there was an earthquake that leveled the city. When Rome, who was like you know, Washington, D.C., the government came in and offered them help to rebuild their city, they said, no thanks, we don't want your money. We've got enough money, and they rebuilt their city on their own better than it was before. They, these people had money. They were a successful banking commerce community. Think of Wall Street, okay? 
Well, uh, they also had a medical school, world-renowned medical school there. Think Cleveland Clinic, right? And one of the specialties of that medical school was to deal with people with eye problems, and so they developed a very, very effective eye salve for the eyes. And they also had an incredibly successful, profitable textile industry in which they utilized black wool. Okay? Now think of an industry, take cars for example. When you think of cars in the United States, you think of Detroit. Okay? Not like it used to be, but that's the center of the automobile. So as far as textiles go and fashion goes, Laodicea was the place. So they had these three things that they were very proud of and they relied upon. And so Jesus takes those three things and he turns it, does a 180, turns it on his head and says, you, you think you're rich, but you're poor. He says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor. That means you are really, really, really poor. You're blind. Hmm, can't see a thing. And you're naked. Wow. things that they thought were important, the things that they had absorbed as a church, Jesus is saying, it ain't working. And then he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich. That's the money. Uh, you, white clothes to wear, that's the fashion. And he's talking about eternal things. He's talking about spiritual things. You can cover, and you, you're not want to walk around naked anymore. You can cover your shameful nakedness, and then you can put salve on your eyes, and you will actually be able to see. Jesus says, you've got three problems that have contributed to, to you being useless, lukewarm, because you're trusting those things and because you're self-sufficient. Well, I want you to buy from me the real deal. Now, answer this question. How do you buy something from God? Do you have some kind of currency or resource or anything that God needs? And the answer is no. You don't, I don't. We don't. It's not a new phrase used in the Old Testament by the prophet Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So, so God knows you have nothing to pay it with, so how do you buy it from it? Think of buying as the idea of securing. I went hunting on Good Friday. I don't shop. I hunt. Okay? I had something I wanted. I knew where to go get it, and I got it. Okay? I acquired it. All right? In and out. Price was really good. Okay? I acquired it. So think when God says, buy something from me without money. Get it. How do you get it? How do you get anything from God? This is not a trick question. You know the answer. 
How did you become a Christ follower? How did you get forgiveness and, and reconciliation with God and peace and all of that? You simply humbly received it. The way you get something from God is to humbly receive it. You don't work for it. You don't demand it. You don't manipulate God. You don't bribe God. You don't tip God. You receive it from Him. It requires humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's telling this self-sufficient bunch of believers, don't trust yourself. You're you're self-deceived. You actually think that you're rich and you're so poor you don't even know it. We simply receive it. That's how we become a Christ follower. You've heard my testimony more than once. I go to this church, for the first time I hear the gospel presented. Now, my sister had been modeling and praying it and all that, but... but For me, it was the first time I clearly remember, and I trusted Christ. And I am so grateful for that church, for its faithfulness faithfulness to the gospel. And I I spent the next six years, junior high and high school, at that church, growing and maturing, and it's just exactly what God knew I needed. That church, while it presented the gospel correctly, by its teaching and how it modeled things, and they, they didn't understand this. They, didn't, they, would never have, they would never say this, but what they were teaching us was that the way that you get, no, that's not the right word, I'm sorry, the way that you keep your relationship with God in a positive, healthy way is that you do certain things and you don't do certain things. So I spent six years doing all the right things, going to camp, going to church two or three times a week, doing the Bible studies, doing Christian service. I preached at the juvenile jail, you know, all the kind of stuff, singing, all all the things that, that, that students can do. I was doing everything. And at the same time, I did not listen to the radio. I did not watch television. I did not drink. I didn't did not go to the movies. I didn't smoke or chew or girl, go with the girls that do. Okay? I, I, I did all the right things, and, and I didn't do any of the bad things. And, and what I discovered is that I became a very arrogant young man because I'm better than everybody else. I am doing what God wants me to do, so pay attention to me and, you know, just like this church. Just like this church. What an incredible, uh, unflattering reality. Again, I'm grateful for that because God knew I would have self-destructed without that structure. So God, you know, God, God's merciful in what he does. But I had, to, I had to work through that process and learn that that's not how you maintain your relationship with God. It's not about what I do and don't do. Not that that's not important, but, but that's not the deal. Okay. So this is the church that was, did not understand who they were. They, uh, they had, were useless to Jesus because they were so proud, self-sufficient. So what does he tell them to do? 
Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Get serious and repent. Look carefully at yourself. Listen to what I am saying to you. Humbly assess yourself accurately and then deal with it. Deal with it. We're going to talk about discipline in a minute. But let me just ask a question. And, and believe me, it's a question. A little over a year ago, I came to Berean. I was here Sunday. The next Sunday was the annual meeting. I had a whole week to get to know Berean and be part of an annual meeting. At that meeting, I was introduced to a visual that tracked the attendance at Berean for the past 10 years. In the, the months that followed, I, I've asked people and they've helped me out with research. And, and so I was given this chart. I'm not going to, I probably should have made a, a slide of it. But it's the history of attendance at Berean. And, uh, and I'm just going to summarize it for you. 14 years ago, uh, and the year was in 2006, was the zenith of Berean's attendance. And that attendance was 1,100 plus. Right? And so I now find myself over here in 2019. It was 18 when I got here. It's 2019 now. And, and I look at the graph, the visual, and it, it's this. It's not this. It's this. It's half, less than half of what it was 14 years ago. Attendance at Berean. And so I asked myself the question, why? One of the re requirements of, of leadership, an interim pastor, a lead pastor, leadership is to define reality. And so I wanted to know why that was. Now, this is not new to me because this is the third church that I'd been an interim pastor at, and each of those churches had exactly the same experience. At some point, years before, they were double the size when I got there. For, di for different reasons, unique reasons, different locations, all kinds of things, different size churches. But they had, and, and we tried to answer that question. So I've been asking people, individually and collectively, I've been trying to study the documents, I've been trying to keep my, my heart, mind, and ears open uh, to answer that question. And I don't have a really good final answer for it. There are pieces to that that make perfect sense, and it clearly must be factored in. The GM plant closing. Other churches, the general culture and attendance things, patterns of people, all those things. But I would just suggest to you that God is bigger than the GM organization. God's bigger than culture. And, and we're, not, we're not in competition with other churches. At least we shouldn't be. Celebrate when God blesses them. So the question I ask, and it's a question, it is a question. Do not hear what I am not saying. It is a question. Is, is, is something up here? Is God withholding his blessing? Is 
God disciplining Berean. Now, please understand, as was pointed out to me between the services, is that you people are still here. So, you know, it's like I'm talking to somebody that's not here, you know. I get that. But if there's a pattern, if there's something that needs to be prayerfully, humbly looked at and analyzed, well, we need to be willing to do that, whatever that might be. And I don't, I don't claim to know what it is. But if there is something that we need to get serious and repent about, we need to do it. Also, do not make the mistake of thinking that just because there's a lot of people on a Sunday morning or a weekend at a church, that that's that, you know, God's really blessing them. Maybe He is, maybe He isn't. The largest church in the United States is a church that does not accurately teach the gospel. And so it can't, it can't be that God's blessing it. Something's going on there, but you can't. You can't say, well, that's a, a demonstration of God's blessing. No, it's not because God never blesses inaccurate biblical teaching. So I invite you as individuals and collectively as a church to be open to what might be afoot, what might be happening. And understand that God disciplines His children for our good because He loves us. I also remind you that just because things go south doesn't mean God's doing something negative. Job, for example. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him who He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. Proverbs 5.32 says, if you ignore discipline, you despise yourself. Proverbs 13.24 says, if you're a, a, a parent and you spare the rod, that's figuratively speaking for discipline, then you, you, it's like you hate your son. Hate your children. So God loves us, and so the motive is the expression of love. Parallel passage would be Hebrews chapter 12 if you're, if you're interested. The method is the use of unpleasant realities. The purpose to encourage and develop, and the response is submission. In other words, be, get serious and repent as you pray through your life individually and our life collectively as a church. And then humbly respond to the pursuit of Jesus, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Knock's in the present tense, which means Jesus continually knocking. God is incredibly patient. Jesus is incredibly patient with us. Well, what, a, what a Savior we have. But he says, if you'll, if you'll just open the door, you know, if you'll humble yourself and open the door, then, then we can move on. This verse is not written to unsaved people. Well, you know, it's been applied for you know, many, many years to unsaved people, and it has an application there but it's talking to the church. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a repeated truth in the Scriptures. Now, the promise here, and again, Jesus is the amen, is current fellowship. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm on the outside, church at Laodicea. You're so self-sufficient. 
You, you believe you've got it all together. You, you believe you, you don't need anything. And I'm telling you, you're in, you're in really a bad shape. So, so get earnest, get serious and repent, and let me in. And if you do, then we'll eat together. You'll be able to eat with me. We in the United States don't really get the strength of that. The majority of the rest of the world, when they get together, with, when they eat with people, family, whatever, friends, they're not doing it just to eat. I cannot tell you the times that I have been in the United States, but also in other cultures. And I'm done eating, and everybody else is you know, just getting going. You know, I'm done. I, you know, I accomplished my mission. I'm going to go on to the next thing. That's a pathetic way to live. I hope you were able to slow down at least for Thanksgiving and enjoy your family and fellowship. And, but in the rest of the world, it, it's a time of, of communication. It's a time of fellowship. It's not just eating to get fuel to do the next thing. So he says, if you open, let me in, we'll, we'll fellowship intimately, deeply, richly. And then there's going to be a future honor. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. And he gives his own illustration. Now, there are people that take this verse and make the conclusion, well, here it is. If, if, if we do this right, if we overcome, then we're going to become God. No, it's not saying that. He's saying it's going to be like it was with my father and me. We will never be God. Never. We're not gods in training. We're sinful, created beings, redeemed by Jesus Christ. Undeserving, unworthy. What a blessing it is to be the undeserving recipients of the grace of God, individually and collectively. And so we turn our attention to what we call communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And we, out of obedience to the command of Jesus, are going to remember his death until he returns. Now, that could be at any time. And I, I vote for like right now, okay? Uh, but uh, who knows? Jesus, you know, Jesus knows now. God knows. Now, how we do it at Berean, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. I'm not saying it's the right way. This is the way we do it, okay? If you know Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to participate with us. We want, we want you to, to fellowship with us and be part of remembering together. We're going to serve and be served. Think of when you receive the, the basket or the tray uh, that you're receiving, you're being served, and then you're going to serve the person, you're going to serve the person next to you. It's going to be a time of, of quiet contemplation, thought, for, for just a few minutes. We're going to be still. And I trust that you will invite the Spirit of God to speak to you, encourage you when you need encouraged, convict you if you need convicting.
Where is your heart? The wisdom writer in Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart. I'm not talking about the organ that pumps blood. You will notice this morning that God has arranged us to be reminded of a need to have humble, surrender hearts, individually and collectively. If we're going to, to enjoy Jesus now, if we're going to be part of, of his plan in the future, we must deal with our hearts. If anything that we've talked about this morning, individually, collectively, you want to talk about, we're here, I'm here to do it, we'll make it happen. These are incredible days at Brewery. On your way out, there will be the, uh, a deacon fund offering that's given away to people that have needs that money can address. Thank you for your generosity. Relative, congrats. Father, thank you that you invite us to let you into our lives. Lord, give us hearts that are tender and open. Give us ears to hear. Lord, we want to be individually and collectively people that you see as useful, who are willing to be part of whatever it is that you want done wherever we are here and around the world. That's what we want, Father. And thank you that we serve Jesus. The amen, the faithful and true one. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you.